Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, New Books and History. I'm your host, R. Grant Kleiser. Joining me today is Dr. Jeff Arabig Jr., who will be talking about his recent publication entitled Where Caciques and Mapmakers Met, Border Making in 18th Century South America, out now via the University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Arabig is an assistant professor in the Department of Latin American and Latino Studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And he is currently in residence at the Kellogg Institute for International Studies. He has written several publications that deal with cartography in colonial Latin America and indigenous communities in the Rio de la Plata region, which spans roughly modern day Argentina, Paraguay, Brazil, and Uruguay. Besides teaching history classes on topics concerning Latin America, the slave trade, indigenous communities, and Latino studies, Dr. Erbig has extensive experience in digital mapping and digital humanities techniques, a topic which I hope we'll discuss in this interview. His new monograph, Where Caciques and Mapmakers Met, charts the interplay between imperial and indigenous spatial imaginaries and shows the essential role that indigenous actors played in imperial border making between the Spanish and Portuguese in the Rio de la Plata region in the mid to late 18th century. Dr. Erbig shows how this process does not fit neatly into concepts of resistance or accommodation, as the Hispano-Portuguese border making from 1750 until the end of the century was in part necessitated by indigenous actions, shaped by indigenous actors, and even reinforced the authority and autonomy of certain native polities. Dr. Erbig, many congratulations on your work and welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me here. So to start, um, some of our listeners might not be familiar with the colonial Rio de la Plata region. Can you just briefly sort of set up the context of this place in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries, describe who were the major actors and major dynamics in this region at that time? Sure, I'll be happy to. Um, so first to um, repeat what you said, like, where are we talking about? Um, so Rio de la Plata, um, as I tend to define it, um, really I'm talking about what is presently Uruguay, northeastern Argentina, and the far south of Brazil. Um, I say that because Rio de la Plata as a term is something that's been used to mean different things and often includes, as you mentioned earlier, um, Paraguay as well, or all of Argentina, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So in terms of context, um, I'll give you two perspectives. Um, the first sort of uh, kind of the historical narrative of kind of colonial uh, jockeying, et cetera. And then I want to focus a little bit more on um, what this perspective might look like if we focus on indigenous peoples from the region instead. Um, so who are the major actors and so forth? Um, from the colonial perspective, right, this area, which is really southeastern South America, was long seen as a backwater to colonial projects, right? Where And most people have focused on the Andes, on what's now Mexico, or in the case of Brazil, on Bahia, on Rio, et cetera, et cetera, right? So the first main sort of colonial actors that folks talk about in this region are Jesuits. 
Um, there's a large, in the, the northern portion, portion of this region, there's a large mission complex, the thing, 30 missions, um, between Jesuit missionaries and Guarani-speaking native peoples. Right? So this is probably by far the, the most populous um, group in the area overall, right? the folks living on the missions. Um, through the uh, end of this, the 17th century, um, this, there are very sparse colonial, colonial settlements for Spain and for Portugal. Um, you have Buenos Aires across the Rio de la Plata River. Um, and then you start seeing over the course of the late 17th, early 18th century, several kind of smaller settlements, um, most notably Montevideo, which is now the capital of Uruguay, um, which is a Spanish settlement, or um, Colonia do Sacramento, which is a Portuguese settlement there. Um, so you have kind of these three main kind of groups on the colonial side of things. You have Jesuits and Guaranis, who are affiliated with the Spanish crown, but somewhat autonomous. You have the Spanish, who are usually coming from the south and from the west of the region, and then the Portuguese, who are along the Atlantic coast um, as well. Um, the, why were people interested in this region? Um, the thing for the Spanish, right, this, Buenos Aires in particular, and also Montevideo and Colonia, were hubs for, uh, for trade, right? So coming from the, from the continental interior silver from Potosí, um, and coming from the Atlantic, generally uh, enslaved Africans um, is, is some of the principal trade. Within the countryside, the rural area that I'm talking about, the main thing that people were trying to get their hands on was um, feral livestock, particularly bovine cattle for their hides and for, for many other reasons. So as we start getting into the early uh, 18th century, it becomes more of a jurisdictional conflict between um, kind of these three poles in, in terms of who's claiming it, right? There had been a, the Treaty of Tordesillas is something that was signed um, in the 1400s that theoretically arbitrated access to lands, um, but it was very complicated, right? There, there was an ambi ambiguous treaty. Um, there were other means of claiming territorial possession, whether it be settlement, whether it be claiming native peoples as vassals and then be a proxy. Um, and to kind of further complicate matters, you have overlapping settlements. So you have, um, not in the physical space, but you have, you know, one Spanish settlement, then a Portuguese settlement, then a Spanish settlement that you can't really divide into a lot. Right, so this is the kind of the jurisdictional and the material conflict that's going on on the colonial side of things. If we were to think of a, a narrative face focused principally on native peoples of this region, we would go back prior, to, of course, to um, European arrival, right? So in about the 1400s, um, there is a migration southward of folks, many of whom would have spoken Guarani, um, coming into this region, right, and, and developing ties to folks who already lived in the area. Um, and this is kind of the backdrop to in the 1500s when the, when the Spanish and the Portuguese kind of start moving, coming into this region. Um, but through this, the, really most of the 1600s, there aren't, as I said, many um, colonial settlements. Um, you have kind of on the perimeter some things, um, but really this is native ground. Um, as the Spanish in particular arrive, particularly via the Guaranis, they start building um, ties with um, Guarani-speaking peoples, particularly those on the missions, um, and start kind of developing um, kind of political and social bonds in that way, in a way that they didn't with the native communities that I've been pr principally focused on, folks known as charruas, as boanes, as genoas, as minoanes, 
shadows are some of the principal ethnic identifiers, um, but who I largely refer to as bonderias, referring to their um, kind of their kind of social spatial structure. Um, and then the main context that I focus on um, in the book is these large scale mapping expeditions under the Treaty of Madrid in the 1750s and of the Treaty of San Ildefonso in the 1780s into the 1790s, in which Spain and Portugal sought to draw a border in the region and claim the entirety of the space for themselves. Mm. And and speaking of the sort of indigenous perspective on this that is often neglected, I think, in the historiography, and, and based on what you said, you, you employ this term tolderias in this work to describe these indigenous communities. And especially for those who, you know, perhaps are looking at this from a North American perspective, might not be familiar with that term. Can you explain what that term meant? Maybe it's an etymology and, and why you choose to employ that most often. Sure. Um, and, and just as a little point of clarification, I understand what you're saying. I don't know that I necessarily get at an indigenous perspective. Um, what I'm trying to do is center the actions of indigenous agents, um, which I think is what, what you meant. Um, so Bolidias, um, this is a term um, that I use to refer to the best translation would be sort of mobile encampments established by native peoples. So I see it as a sort of a socio-spatial unit that I treat as an analogous to settlements that would be colonial settlements, right? So like on one hand, I might think of like towns, missions, and forts as one sort of type of fixed settlement and Bolidias as these sort of mobile encampments um, that Charruas and Minoanas and others formed over time, right? And moved from, um, moved throughout the region to access resources, to control trade, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The term itself, Bolidia or Bolmaria in, in Portuguese, um, derives from the term Boldo, um, which is literally sort of a tent-like structure. Um, if, if you Googled Boldo, I think you would get like a, I think kind of, you would get an image of like a carport now. Um, but, but what it really would be is uh, more generally with like animal hides, kind of a, a living structure that one would one would live in. And a bolderia is literally a collection of toldos. So when um, charruas or minuanes or shadows or others, um, when different smaller kind of community units join together, they for a period of time, whether it's months or, or longer, they would form what's called a tolderia, right? Which is literally you would have all of these um, these toldos throughout um, in, in the same kind of living space, right? But it also was a community center. It included spaces for grazing. Um, often the places where they were located were sacred lands or there was burial grounds or, or otherwise. Um, I think the third part of the question was why do I use, why do I use that term? Um, so there is a tendency, um, and there's been a lot written about this in, in scholarship to focus on kind of ethnic categories as kind of the, the classificatory scheme for understanding actions of peoples, right? So, um, or national categories, so, right? So the Spanish act in a certain way, the Portuguese act in a certain way, Charroas act in a certain way, Guarani act in a certain way. Like there's a, there's a trope of that because that's what the sources try to push us to, right? These are terms that um, people who are writing historical, who are writing at the time and created sources imagined as shaping people's actions. The problem is, um, these are not, like, there's no evidence that anybody during the colonial period ever self-identified as Chabu, or anybody ever self-identified as Mimana, that those were meaningful terms or classifications, right? They certainly are nowadays, right? And, and, I, and I don't mean to undercut that, like, those are very important identities nowadays, and we can get into that later on. 
But when we're talking about the, the 1700s, for example, um, we don't necessarily know the, the terms that people use. Um, beyond that, right, these are terms that are used in very contradictory ways in the sources, right? So different sources will label people in different ways or different sources will label different people with the same thing. Um, and they were also used to kind of develop certain tropes. So, for example, colonial authorities might use the term um, minuanes to refer to different tolerias. And they might sign a pact with one of these tolerias, and then they can't understand why this other one which has nothing to do with the previous one, isn't following the strictures of the pact, right? Or the treaty or an accord. And then there's these tropes of like, well, ind indigenous inf infidelity and not respecting pacts. When really these are two people who wouldn't, you know, the second Toledia wouldn't be bound to the pact of the first one. Right? So you have things like, like that. Um, and I mean, this is my use of it. There are other terms that people use, um, people, parcialidades, um, casicascos, whatever, um, to really try to get at kind of the local elements of community identification to identify the roles of, it, of particular leaders, um, which is the term cacique, right, which is literally an indigenous leader, which is in the title of the book, um, are often arranged around that. So like a tolderia would generally have some sort of political leader, spiritual leader um, that might be identified with it. So you, all, you would often see in sources, uh, the tolderias del cacique, the, the, the tolderias of a particular cacique which is often a way that you can identify kind of a particular one moving over time. Um, the, the other reason that, that I use it is to emphasize space, um, to emphasize politias are things that we can, are, are communities that can be to a greater degree pinpointed in space at a particular moment in time, right? So politia is here at a particular moment in time. Um, we can see that in a source. Um, as opposed to kind of these ambiguous ethnic geographies that really don't help us understand um, spatial practices in the same way, at least in the context that I'm looking at. I'm not saying that that's ubiquitous everywhere, um, but in, in the context that I'm looking at. Um, and, and lastly, that it helps us move past um, colonial and indigenous binaries, right? So we have instances of tolderias who have closer ties to a neighboring colonial settlement than other tolderias that were identified by the same ethnic category, right? So you see, for example, Charruas circa near the um, the town of Santa Fe, trading Charrua captives with colonial settlers settlers from Santa Fe, right? That doesn't mean they were being unfaithful to their to their kin. It's that this category of Charrua at the time wasn't meaningful, right? And there were other right there were other people outside of their community. So, in short, I I, I think it's it's more precise. I do use in the, I do use wherever they're mentioned in sources ethnic identifiers. Um, in the source, um, in, in, in my text, because um, I don't think we can wholeheartedly discard that, but I do want to push against that a little bit. It's one of the things I'm trying to do. Yeah, definitely. Um, so how did you initially become interested in this region, in this topic, and especially in centering the actions of indigenous agents in this sort of spatial um, mm -hmm. analysis? Well, you know, it's funny. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's one of these things when you get to the end of the book, you try to create a narrative of how you got through the whole process. And it's really like these short sighted decisions, you know, strung together. Um, yeah. I, I think for me, um, you know, I've always believed that that colonial studies are as much about the present as they are about the past. Right. So for me, studying um, what we call in political terms, the colonial world, like we can talk about um, coloniality and colonialism in many ways still continuing, but in traditional sense, 
um, colonial term is kind of, you know, like the colonial period. Um, that for me has always been a way to help understand the, pre the present um, and has I've moved through and my movement through the world in the present. Um, so when I was, you know, I first became engaged uh, with this, with thinking about kind of histories of cartography. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, um, I was working very closely with someone named uh, Dr. Um, Bernardo Michael um, when I was an undergraduate who works, whose um, work is focused on uh, mapping in South Asia, colonial, British colonialism and mapping in South Asia. And at the time, right, the early 2000s, there was a lot of stuff coming out of, sort of the British colonial world um, and mapping as a way to understand British colonialism. Um, um, and other, you know, in state making and nationalism. Um, there's, I mean, there's numerous texts one could refer to here. Um, around the same time, when I, I was living in um, Quito, in Ecuador, um, and I noticed, right, I, I noticed all these sorts of different kind of perpetual land disputes um, that, um, that I think, thinking about the colonial world helped me to understand, right, whether that was um, disputes over oil extraction in the Amazon or a university I was studying at. Um, right outside the university, there was um, uh, a community who had been in a long land conflict with the Mercedarian monastery. And then when I went to the archive, I, you know, I, saw, I saw sources related to that. Um, so that, that thematically, this has been a thing that's on my mind in a long time. Um, in terms of the region, um, I lived for a number of years um, in Buenos Aires, and, and while I was living in Buenos Aires, you know, I saw similar things, right? When you walk through the city center, you see Mapuche peoples, you see Guam peoples, you see other folks um, protesting um, because of lack of access to their own lands, or because of natural gas mining in their lands, or because of state or non- or extra state actors um, literally killing their kin um, as they seek to defend their lands. Um, so as I saw that in juxtaposition with some of the work that I was doing in the National Archive in Buenos Aires, I came across this case um, that really, um, I think, helped me to understand what I was seeing. Um, and I think the centering of indigenous people, I, I don't think one can do um, history of the Americas or, or um, much less colonial Latin American history um, without kind of really focusing on native peoples. Um, in terms of population numbers, in terms of land claims, in terms of um, knowledge, you know, there, there are infinite number of reasons. Um, so it wasn't really, I mean, I think it was, it, it, it didn't, it seemed to me to be a logical um, focus, in particular in this region, um, which has a long tradition of uh, denying the existence, the very existence of Native communities, mm -hmm. um, I think mm -hmm. was something else that, that really pushed it on my mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, so related to that sort of centering Native peoples uh, in the colonial area, because they were so central, it seems um, from my perspective that the historiography has sort of shifted from this more uh, older notion of a sort of a frontier history to more of a borderlands type of analysis of history that, that f sort of emphasizes more complex, uh, fluid, and compromising some terms middle ground or even native ground where um, native autonomy and agency is, is privileged um, and is emphasized for, for much of the colonial period uh, as, as a truism. Um, so how do you sort of see your work fitting into this historiographical progression of the last, say, 100 or 150 years? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think it's a great summary of a lot of the changes. And I think particularly in North America, I think, I don't know that 
people use the term native ground as much. Some people do. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I studied in UNC Chapel Hill and Kathleen Duvall has a book called Native Ground. So that's kind of my <laughs> reference yeah. for, for that. Um, a wonderful Definitely. book. Um, yeah. And I think those tend to be kind of the two kind of context-based paradigms that people draw upon nowadays, right? This idea of um, whereas there's, there's this old there's this old narrative um, that juxtaposed political border lines on cultural divisions and that necessarily told stories that settlered uh, that celebrated settler colonists as kind of bearers of civilization and treated native peoples as enemies, victims, bit players, or people destined to disappear. Right, borderland studies over the past. 40 years or so, 30, 40 years, has really pushed back on that in the ways that you mentioned. Um, I think where I'm a little bit different than other folks is that in kind of critiquing this notion of borderlines, right, which is something that's very central to borderland studies of the like 19th and 20th centuries, right? There's this kind of divide where there's like, well, prior to nation states, the borders are ambiguous. Then there's nation states, there are borders that divide people. And I see that as somewhat of a false temporal division. Um, and I think that the, within the colonial studies, kind of the, the push against focusing on borders, while warranted and very important, has been a little bit, has helped, has kind of, within that, we've lost a little bit of the importance of the idea of borders and the project of creating borders in colonial periods um, to understand actions and, and the distinctions between different types of, of borders. So what I try to do um, is think about border lines, not as kind of these necessarily real things, but as political projects that both colonial um, of all sorts um, and native peoples um, engaged with. Um, so, you know, like in, in Latin American scholarship, we see very much like this, this discussion of like zones, uh, like contact zones, um, zones of interaction, permeable zones. And that's good in the sense of like thinking about the complexity of culture and thinking about the ambiguity of these spaces, but it's also very, very, very imprecise. Um, and it often, and I think sometimes obfuscates um, the spatial dynamics that are in play. Um, so I tend to think more in terms of um, archipelagos, right? So thinking about Colonial settlements as kind of nodes along enclaves and corridors to kind of borrow from folks like Lauren Benton or Tamar Herzog, um, and thinking about indigenous donerias as nodes as well, but mobile nodes, right? And each of these sort of local local kind of settlements or encampments, right? This is, in many cases had territorialized visions, meaning kind of like like bounded spaces visions, um, but those that shape their actions, but these are things that kind of overlapped and were simultaneous. So thinking about kind of this interplay between the way that people um, imagine space and the way that people act in space, I think focusing on um, thinking about borders as political projects um, is a way to get at that. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what I try to do. Yeah. So related to that and, and moving more into the meat of your work, your first chapter, I think, really sets up well the spatial practices of regional inhabitants in and around the Rio de la Plata prior to the Treaty of Madrid in 1750. Um, so can you talk about, and you know, specifically about these spatial practices and especially comment on the importance of indigenous actors at this time and in this place? Of course. Um, yeah. So in thinking first about the physical geography of the region, um, right, because 
action action in in you know in, in the region is very much shaped by this um, on all sides. Um, but this is a very flat region that is intersected or bisected by um, by waterways, right? So a lot of this has changed in recent decades because of damming. A lot of the fluvial systems are, are somewhat different. Um, but what you would really have to imagine is kind of um, like if you were to to raise your right and left hand together, spread your fingers and put them together and think of your fingers as rivers, right? Something that looks like that. And in between your, your fingers is kind of a like a highland corridor. Um, so the reason I, I say that is that while there, there's often, I think sometimes like when you think about like flat plains as opposed to mountainous areas, it, there is a tendency um, sometimes to conceive of that as kind of just like open space that people can move in any direction. And that's kind of, kind of amb ambiguous in a particular sense. Um, what I try to, the reason I, I'm mentioning this is to focus on how the natural world um, channel people through particular areas um, and livestock as well, right? When we're talking about, you know, I, I mentioned bovine cattle, right? This is a particular, I mean, if we conceive of it as resources, um, which is one way of conceiving them, it's a resource that has legs and that moves, right? Um, and is mobile itself. Um, so in terms of spatial um, practices, um, I think I would kind of frame it as, as follows. Um, this, in terms of kind of political control and sovereignty over the region. Right? This is an, a region that has is very multipolar in terms of who controls what and where, but fundamentally was native ground. So I, what I mean by that is the following. Right? If you'd imagine the perimeter of this region, right? if we imagine it's a circle, and on the perimeter, you have colonial settlements. right? So in the north, northwest, you have Jesuit Guarani missions. Um, on the west and in the south, you have Spanish settlements. And on the south and on the east along the Atlantic coast, you have Portuguese settlements, right? So all around this perimeter, you have these colonial settlements. And I'm talking now about really about the 18th century. And all in the middle, there are fonderias who are not uniform and who are not all allied to one another and who are not, you know, just kind of some blank mass, but have their own dynamics who are moving through different portions of the region, right? So you might have, um, for example, in the south of the region, Minuan um, Tolerias, who were um, in in winter months, would move to the lowlands and cultivate honey um, and move livestock to grasslands there. And then in the summer region, summer months, move to higher lands with livestock um, and also um, hunt deer, right? So they're moving kind of along, kind of stretching these different ecosystems along kind of subparts of the region. And then they're kind of tethered together by um, what they would call cacique principales or kind of larger um, indigenous leaders who tethered together kind of these local nodes via networks of kinship, of power and authority, right? And who competed with one another. Um, and as these two, like if we think about these two frames together, right? The kind of perimeter and then this interior, um, we see as colonial settlements arise, native leaders incorporating them into the into indigenous worlds, right? So there's numerous records of um, colonial authorities offering payments to indigenous people, right? Which colonial authorities framed as like paying them off or um, subsidizing them or whatever. Um, but what seems to be clear from, um, if we see them all together, um, we're more likely symbols of acknowledging indigenous authority in those spaces. Um, and when we see colonial agents 
um, whether they're from the missions, whether they're from Spanish or Portuguese settlements, entering into the interior of this region or the kind of the rural portion, they're either hiding from Valdivias or they're guided from them um, or they're seeking support from them, right? Um, so the question is, well, why would they want to go to the middle, right? That's where, all, that's where the resources, that's where the livestock is. So, right, the Spanish are trying to get hides um, to, um, and to um, make beef jerky from meat to send to the Caribbean to feed enslaved peoples there. The Portuguese are trying to move um, livestock northward to mines, um, diamond mines in Minas Gerais. There's all sorts of reasons why they're trying to access it. Or the Spanish are trying to trade with the, the British and sell them hides. Um, so what we see is in terms of spatial dynamics, there tend to be kind of local affiliations um, that interact with kind of these broader allegiances. Um, and ultimately, I think, despite all kind of like the locality of power, um, an overall, particularly through most of the 18th century, um, overall native control of the region. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so given that, and I think that's a really important uh, intervention to make and an important claim to make, especially from these previous historians that have really privileged uh, European claims over space, they're very probably false claims over space. Um, but given given these conflicts between especially European actors, you know, Spanish, Portuguese, and even, you know, Jesuit Guarani communities um, over over cattle, over mines, over trade, what were some of the strategies used for resolving these conflicts? Uh, by these European actors uh, mm -hmm. in the in in the um, 18th century. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as you you know as you alluded to, right, it's not just European actors, right. Also, from the like the the largest military force in the region are Guarani militias from the missions, right. So, um, you know, and, and Guarani towns also had indigenous leadership, right, along with the Jesuits. Right? They have their own um, town councils. They have their own community structures. So it's important to, and I, I think. It complicates our narrative a little bit, but it's important to kind of think about them, at least vis-a-vis -vis, um, Charruas and Minuanas and others, as all kind of settlers coming into their spaces. Um, so, you know, what you've articulated is really kind of the framework that most people use to imagine this region as kind of a tripartite frontier between Spanish, Portuguese, and the Jesuit Guarani uh, complex, right? As we said, right, there's this question of how do we access the livestock? Obviously, you have Spanish versus Portuguese jurisdictional disputes, but there's also disputes within Spanish jurisdictions, right? They're not acting as uniform blocks. So the missions are competing, you know, folks set out from the missions to slaughter livestock or to bring them back to the missions, right, are competing with um, other folks coming from the Spanish settlement of Santa Fe or from Corrientes or from Buenos Aires in the same spaces, right? So some of the strategies that they made, even vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, other folks ostensibly affiliated with the same crown was to try to corral or move livestock closer to their to their own lands. Um, when I say corral, I don't mean with fences. I mean kind of putting them into what were known as rincones or kind of the 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 uh, where two rivers join to one another, right? So kind of moving livestock closer to them. Um, we also see contraband trade across imperial settlements. So how do they try to resolve these sorts of things? Well, um, on the Spanish side, the Spanish governor tried to create jurisdictions among subjects. So they even, um, you know, erected kind of stone markers to say, okay, well, these are between this river and this river, 
folks from Santa Fe have access. And between this river and this river, folks from the missions have access. Um, that never really seemed to satisfy anybody. Um, there's also kind of a kind of crises of are the are are there enough livestock overall, or are they kind of they're not they're not reproducing enough. Um, between the Spanish and the Portuguese, there's that's a different story, right? That's a, a different story of kind of imperial possession, which is very much the backdrop of the meat of this work. Um, there were different strategies. Uh, one, <clears throat> there were efforts at shared access, right? So there, for example, um, in 1680, there there's a treaty signed that literally says Spain and Portugal vassals of both crowns have joint access to the countryside. Um, more importantly, um, there's a jockeying for support from Valdivias, right? So if we think about these kind of isolated settlements, right, they're not, like when we think of Montevideo, for example, right, Montevideo, this, that settlement doesn't mean that Spain has control of like all of what is now Uruguay. It means that they have control of Montevideo and maybe uh, like a couple miles like radius outside of it. So once they go past that, right, and try to get to, to livestock, they really need support from Valdivias. Um, which they sometimes garner and sometimes don't. Um, and they try to not only gain access, access for themselves, but try to kind of create alliances to blockade one side or the other. Right? So the Spanish um, and the, the Jesuit Guarani, Guarani um, uh, administration and leaders are always trying to blockade Colonia, which is the main Portuguese settlement. Um, they occupy it, they evict the Portuguese, they do all that sort of stuff many times. Um, the, the other side of it is kind of using whatever kind of jurisdiction, uh, juridical tools they have at hand, right? So I firmly believe that despite all of its limitations, that imperial law very much mattered to imperial agents, right? particularly administrators, uh, and particularly kind of as we think about like administrators on, on all different levels. So they would do things like try to harken back to earlier treaties, whether it be the 1494 Treaty of Tordesillas to say, oh, well, according to the treaty, there should be a borderline here, something that was never mapped, but there should be a borderline here. So all of these lands are belong to Spain. Or conversely, no, actually the line would have been drawn west of Buenos Aires, so all of these lands belong to Portugal. Or any number of things, right, to, to try to do. Or, well, um, years ago, um, there were Franciscan missionaries who created a mission among Charruas, Therefore, Charroas are Christian subjects under the Spanish crown, and therefore all their lands belong to us. All sorts of things like that. Um, and this kind of, I mean, this kind of takes us to the early part of the 1700s when there really is a sharp turn toward mapping, um, where both Spain and Portugal commission uh, mapping expeditions from their own crowns to try to kind of find some sort of, through the kind of imagined precision of mapping, something that would give them the upper hand in these juridical debates. Um, and that's really what takes us up through the first half of the 18th century. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so why did this, this Portuguese and Spanish settle on a collaborative uh, mapping expedition in, in, in the mid-century? Mid yeah, um, so <laughs> I think there are answers that they give. Um, mm -hmm. And then there, I, there was what I might suggest was that was the case instead. Um, so the the settlement on collaborative mapping expeditions is there's a lot of kind of Spanish and Portuguese diplomats alike saying like, well, we can't trust any mapping expedition that's commissioned by one crown or the other. 
right? Because it's naturally going to be biased toward their crowd, right? And we remember, right, this is a moment of very much enlightenment thought, whereas this idea that, well, via direct observation and via kind of this neutral, this kind of performance of neutrality, then we can get to an accord that will supersede all the previous ones and get us to, um, you know, a something that is fixed and works for us. And both sides were invested in that because this is a moment where they're trying to access not just coastlines and riverine corridors as they had for um, centuries, but kind of inland spaces as well. And to do that, they're their strategy was to give land titles and to send settlers to those spaces. And if the juridical claim wasn't clear, the, the kind of foundation of those land titles also was a little bit, was much easier and made that project different. So that was, you know, from kind of the imperial perspective, right, that was very much um, the way that they narrated it, right, what they needed to do. We need to clear this up um, so that we will stop having these problems so that we can send settlers and then perhaps someday even trade across the border with one side or the other. Um, but more than anything, to control resources and to kind of create order as they saw it in the, in the countryside. The way I see it a little bit more is that it was uh, an explicit effort to circumvent native authority, right? So, um, so one of the principal ways that they, were, that they tried, as I said, to claim control over the region was via claiming native peoples as vassals, right? Whether or not Charroas or Minuanes ever acknowledged that or not, right? So, you know, the claims that, well, if they were baptized, then now they're acknowledging the authority of the Spanish king or the Portuguese king, depending upon who baptized them. Um, or if they created a mission settlement, even if it only lasted for a month, they were, you know, they were part of, um, they, they're acknowledging the authority of, of a particular crown. Or in kind of more kind of physical material sense, right, the need to kind of make these alliances to, effectively um, uh, access land. And to me, what the mapping ex expeditions really mark is an abandonment of um, treating autonomous native communities as political agents who could be treated as political agents in the same way as, as others, meaning an abandonment of efforts, particularly in this region by the Spanish, um, to um, try to make peaceful ties with native peoples, um, but rather trying to claim them and force them into subjugation. So there's kind of a flipping of logics. Um, whereas up until the really about the mid uh, 18th century, the notion is that um, imperial land possession followed one's vassals, right? So where one's vassals went, the king was, um, so was sovereign and, and possessed that space, right? The same, and for that reason, right, if native peoples could be claimed as vassals, their lands could be claimed as well. What you have with the drawing of the border is a flipping of that logic and, and a kind of a decontextualization of land possession in which land possession is claimed via treaties and diplomatic accords, um, and particularly the drawing of borderlines over these kind of like territorialized spaces. Um, and by extension, those people living on those spaces would be marked as vassals of a particular crown, or at least subject to the authority of one crown or the other. Um, so I think that there's simultaneously um, what's happening is um, this inter-imperial dispute, but also reimagining of relations between um, colonial uh, authorities and indigenous um, peoples. 
Definitely. And, and so during, during these actual map making exhibitions themselves, um, you really describe how important, as you've been mentioning uh, for this entire interview, how important indigenous actors were uh, to this access of space. Can you, see, can, you, can you describe a little bit of the roles that these various tolerators played in these mapping exhibitions themselves? Um, and as a sort of a follow-up, uh, did Portuguese and Spanish actors acknowledge these, this tolerator help um, in mapping this borderland? You know, when I started this project, um, what I hoped to find and what I perhaps arrogantly anticipated finding would be a lot of collaboration between um, Bolivias and these ma these mapping expeditions. Um, because a lot of other people had been, you know, as I was kind of starting this research, had found similar things in other spaces, right? So like, along, all along, I mean, this is a continental border that's, you know, maps, not exactly, but approximately on the present day borders between Brazil and um, Spanish South, Spanish America. Nowadays, it is a very, very long border, the, the longest border in the Americas. Um, and in many other contexts, there were, there were native peoples who served as guides, who shared knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in this region, the Guarani-speaking Guad peoples um, very much occupied that role, right? They were the ones, when you look at the kind of the, the um, registers of like who's part of these mapping expeditions, of course, right, the, the accounts are written by, you know, half a dozen to a dozen um, European military um, officials um, who are obviously focusing on their perspective and the things that they're doing. But it's really the labor is being done by indigenous laborers, um, among other folks. So whether it's rowing canoes, moving livestock, creating pathways, um, finding food, um, it's really, by and large, native labor, um, along with enslaved, um, in some cases, enslaved um, Africans, um, in some cases, conscripted military folks, in some cases, kind of um, peasants who lived in, in the different areas. Um, and also, like these are these are folks who are sharing their their knowledge as well, right? They're correcting maps, correcting the naming of rivers, guiding the teams, collecting what the the mapping expeditions saw as specimens of like you know animals and, and plants and that sort of thing. In the case of Polidias, which was your your specific question, there's very there's really we don't see cases of collaboration. Um, by and large, they don't appear in the narratives of the mapping expeditions, like the kind of the pulp the the ones, the official ones that they sent back, some of which were published, um, they they appear very literal, little at all. Um, so I'll give you there's and, and when they do, it tends to be as antagonists. So for example, in the 1750 expeditions in the Treaty of Madrid, um, the Spanish and Portuguese teams are encamped in a part of the region, and at night, a group, uh, some folks from nearby Fonderias enter and take out all of their horses and livestock and so forth. Right. Um, and then they can't really advance until they kind of get new supplies. Um, or in the 1780s, under the Treaty of San Ildefonso, um, this is the thing that I found most interesting. Um, the mapping expeditions, as they're walking through the region, claiming and declaring sovereignty for one crown or the other and erecting stone markers and drawing maps and doing all these other sorts of things to perform sovereignty, are paying, are paying tribute to local indigenous leaders in efforts to be able to go on. So there's numerous instances in which the mapping expeditions are detained by kind of envoys of, of a local indigenous leader. Sometimes a lead, leader themselves, you know, appears in a, as part of the narrative and who detain them until they offer payments. And then generally let them go on to 
um, other sorts of, of land. So what I see is there's very much sort of a, an, ac- an absence of Polarias in the narratives of the mapping expedition, but that ma- lack of mention is not a lack of importance, but rather a sign of their sovereignty, right? That silence is a sign of their sovereignty. Um, the, we might think also like one of the things I try to do in the book is map out the time in which the mapping expedition spent and the types of things they did in each area. And you can see as they're kind of closer to areas that we might say like, okay, this is really areas under colonial control, where they're trying to apprehend people who are trading illicitly. They're, tr- they're spending months and months and months trying to draw every detail. Once they get to native lands, it's like two weeks, right? And four or five times the distance that they're covering, right? If you see a, a line on the map, the line looks exactly the same. But really what they're doing is trying to kind of, and, and they write about this, trying to kind of get through as fast as possible. Um, there are other examples that I could give, um, but I think we see this, you know, kind of this, this continued pattern of, of arbitrating access to the space. Yeah, definitely. And um, and so, you know, thinking about this mapping expedition, usually we when we consider sort of the history of colonization, you think of European mapping and, and claims over space. Um, as being sort of essential and sort of a natural progression towards sort of a lack of native autonomy um, in response to this, uh, you use European uh, knowledge production and claims over space. But I think your book tells a much different story. Um, so can you kind of explain how and why certain Tolerias were actually able to augment their power and authority after these mapping expeditions? Yeah, uh, and what you just articulated, right, the kind of the, is what kind of borderlands, people within borderland studies have tried to kind of clarify, right, like what you just said, right, that, that it's not about a linear progression to native disappearance, um, right? Perhaps over time we can see like there is, the ultimate result is disp- land dispossession, for sure. Um, but um, the kind of the, the persistence of sovereignty or the persistence of native peoples themselves, right? Of course, like they continue to um, exist. Um, and I think that's, right, that's kind of the framework that that um, I entered into, right, in thinking about this. Um, the other thing that I would clarify is that, you know, what I'm about to talk about was not an option that was available to all, right? And this is where space is very important. Um, the drawing of the borderline for people who lived, or native folks who were autonomous and lived far away from the border, um, was in many ways very devastating, um, particularly those in the south of the region, um, as the kind of the political strategy of playing Portugal and Spain off of one another dissipates as they're now kind of, in terms of imperial jurisdiction, imagined jurisdiction, uh, within on the Spanish side of the border. And they can't seek alliances with the Portuguese in a way that they have. So basically, an ally all of a sudden just disappears. Um, but along the border, it's a little bit different. Um, and I think this goes back to um, questions of territoriality and border formation, right? The drawing of the border in the 1750s and the 1780s doesn't make it real, right? The drawing of the border instead reshaped imperial policies, right? And part of those policies are increased aggression, particularly on the part of the Spanish in this region, toward Colerias, but the other part is an increased imperial need, right? There is an increased need to exert control of these lands that they really don't control, right? That they're claiming, but they don't control. And to do that, they need to solicit support of indigenous leaders. I mean, they negotiate with indigenous leaders or envoys, but of indigenous um, communities more broadly. Um, And um, 
in turn, native leaders near the, this border didn't simply resist. I mean, sometimes they did, um, but not always. But rather, more often, we see them as incorporating settlers into their own networks of kinship, power, and authority as they always had. Um, so I think perhaps the clearest way is to give an example. Um, in 1775, on the eve of the second expedition, the Spanish found this fort right along the border known as Santa Tecla. And the reason that they found the fort is to kind of exert this claim and, you know, as they're preparing for the border, the, the border treaty, right? Um, and traditionally, right, this is, this is a kind of, in kind of traditional scholarship, this has been evidence of like Spanish, the extension of Spanish sovereignty into this area, right? And the following year, the Portuguese come and they evict the Spanish from that, right? They are claiming that they're reclaiming their own lands. And then Port Brazilian scholars write about this as the exertion of Portuguese authority over there. But when you really get into kind of the nitty gritty of like the, the, the daily correspondence from the, um, uh, from the fort, what you see is once, well, one of the very first things the Spanish do when they found the fort is they reach out to local um, charroas and minuanas and they come up with, they, they come up with a pact with them. And according to the stricture, and this is of, of the pact that Spanish authorities are writing, um, the Spanish would provide regular payments to the um, to indigenous these indigenous communities um, in exchange for being able to stay there. Indigenous leaders would be able to uh, recommend and demand personnel changes, which they did among those stationed in the fort. And the Spanish were required to remain within the confines and the immediate outside of the fort and not to control the border themselves. And the following year, when we look into the, the kind of the Portuguese sources, we find that those very same indigenous leaders are the ones who guided the Portuguese um, troops, um, who had established kinship ties to them, and who enabled only one Spanish person to escape when the Portuguese invaded, um, who was someone who was, who was the very person who they kind of put in as an intermediate um, between them before. And then the forts eventually abandoned, and 10 years later, when the mapping expeditions come through, these same indigenous leaders are in that same space charging tribute to the Spanish who come through. So rather than imagining the border or border settlement or whatever, right? Like rather than like literally connecting the dots of those settlements to imagine a line in that way, um, what we can imagine are indigenous peoples incorporating um, settlers into their spaces. And in doing so, also developing networks of kinship, which they very much do, um, networks of power and treaties like this, um, and trade networks as well, right? Native peoples tend to be um, the ones who are moving livestock back and forth across this border and creating these um, these trade networks that really define the region over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what happened to these Tolderias, these communities in the 1800s and as the colonial period comes to an end? Well, the border disappeared. Um, yeah. It's part of the story is the short answer. Um, before, so in 1806, um, after probably about, yeah, about a decade of Spanish sending just a barrage of militias and trying to send settlements and, and, and kind of undertaking a, a large-scale genocidal campaign against particular Tolerias. Um, what, during that time, what, what um, specific communities would often do would be simply cross the border or move into what were known as neutral grounds between, um, between Spanish and Portuguese, and the Spanish really wouldn't follow that. Um, but what happens in 1806 is that the Portuguese, uh, local Portuguese officials um, and local Spanish officials come to an agreement and they send a joint raid against Tolerias. So they kind of, they themselves 
disrupt the border, right? And they have this kind of this joint cross-border raid. And then starting um, really about then and over the next two decades, um, wars of independence and the rejection of imperial um, sovereignty in the region um, dissolves the border as kind of a, not only a geopolitical phenomenon, but a kind of um, understanding that shaped imperial and now Republican spatial practice, um, it, it dissolves. So you have kind of more than two, you have four crisscrossing armies going back and forth along Dolidia's lands where it's not just fighters from Dolidia's, but families, right? And kins and, the, and where they're living, right? And there's, you know, lands being burned and there's um, environmental de devastation in, in different ways. Um, and for their part, the Validias tried to manage it as best as they could, right? Creating alliances with um, different um, different factions here and there. Um, but ultimately, when one faction or the other would lose, they were treated apart um, and often um, executed um, or taken as captives, whereas the you know the other faction that they were part of would be then returned as political prisoners. So they weren't afforded the same sort of uh, standing as as all these sorts of rebel armies. And this really continues and, and sets the stage for when Uruguay becomes independent. Um, the One of the very first things that the government does is sends military forces up to the north of the country. And this is in 1831. And on the premise of parlaying with several indigenous caciques. And what they do instead is they ambush them uh, and they um, killing scores of people um, and taking others captive back to Montevideo, um, where women and children um, were separated and divided and, and distributed amongst elite families, where many men were held in prison or exiled to prison colonies, um, and where others were taken and actually sold to a French schoolmaster and put on display in, in Paris as a human zoo. Um, so there's atrocious, atrocious um, activities um, that undermine the political autonomy of Polidias. Um, I do want to be clear, however, right, that this doesn't mean the end of native peoples in the region, right, or descendants of Polidias, right? This is because that has been the narrative of the region since then, by and large, is that this is a region that doesn't have native peoples. Uh, and that's not what I'm saying. Um, what I'm saying is that the imagination the imaginary that emerges via the border and then is accelerated via the, the dissolution of the border um, serves to undermine indigenous um, autonomy in the region. And I think certainly your, certainly your work really contributes to recovering that historical memory of the Tolerias that has been whitewashed and, and um, not acknowledged in, in historiography. And so I think it'll hopefully be a great contribution um, to the memory of, of that region. Um, so moving on to your methodology, I'm always in awe and reverence for scholars who, you know, seriously attempt to privilege uh, and center the actions of indigenous uh, agents, um, especially with the absence of, of so many written records um, by those, uh, those agents themselves. So how did you sort of combat this difficulty in reading perhaps against the grain of the archive um, and sort of tell some indigenous stories in, in this piece. Yeah, so, yeah, I like your phrasing of kind of centering their, their actions. Um, the, I mean, the, the challenge here is, right, unlike other areas, right, there are no sources authored by Bolivarias, right? There are indigenous authored sources by um, Guarani-speaking peoples from the missions, right? And there's been a lot of great research that's, that's 
worked on that. Um, there's also, um, while um, present day charruas um, in kind of over the past 30 years have really been working to kind of um, recover a lot of their um, community linkages and memory um, and political spaces, um, have been working to kind of tether together oral narratives, right? Um, in my discussions with them, and I think broadly, right, what, what they say to me is that, um, you know, really the information that, that they have much more clarity on is about the 19th and 20th century, right? Because, they're, you know, they're talking about, like, the experience of living um, under the Uruguayan government. I mean, while they certainly have, have knowledge um, of the colonial period, right, they're also themselves working to kind of make sense of that um, as best as, as possible. So um, uh, it was actually um, very fruitful, um, the opportunities that I had to, um, to talk with them. But more to your, more to your point, um, how do we deal with this situation where we have um, indigenous actors who are not represented in the colonial archive, right? And who are still kind of figuring out, right, who, who might not have as clear of oral traditions um, to talk about that as, say, folks in North America um, might have, right? And we know there's many instances that, you know, broadly speaking, Native communities have, have that knowledge. Um, so what I tried to do was, rather than thinking about Indigenous voice, which is, I would have loved to be able to talk about that a lot more, think about Indigenous action and particularly actions within space. So take the movement in space and claims over space as meaningful actions upon which we can then read back into the archive. So you mentioned reading against the grain, and that's one thing I do. Um, I also try to read, um, to steal a term from uh, Ann Stoller, right, along the archival grain in thinking about how right, colonial sources tried to kind of codify and, and capture and frame indigenous actions in particular ways. Um, so whether that's being like the invention of ethnic categories um, or whether that's the kind of the the kind of the typology or the taxonomizing of native peoples um, that we can kind of see in sources. Um, but I also try to do what I, um, myself and a colleague at the Universidad de Buenos Aires, Sergio Latini, have talked about what we call reading across archival limits. Um, and what I mean by that is by nature, as native peoples have moved in this region across these imaginary jurisdictions of Spanish or the Portuguese or the missions, right? sources, materials regarding them have been set all over the place, right? I, I researched for this project um, in seven different countries. I think it was, I don't remember how many archives, like 25 archives or something. Um, and that was precisely because each archive provided kind of just little bits of fragments about sometimes the same communities, right? So if you were to go in Uruguay to the National Archive, you would read about um, the Lydias in as much as they entered into relations with uh, Montevideo. But when they moved northward and were engaging with the Portuguese, right, those very same communities often did different things. And when we read those things together and think about the timing of those movements, it helps us to kind of read back on the kind of the interpretations that a single archive would give us. Um, now, I'll say that that's not, a, that wasn't a, that's not an option available to everybody, right? This, this project required a lot of resources that I had the fortune um, and the privilege to be access, have access to. Um, so it's no kind of um, critique of scholars in Uruguay or in Argentina or in the south of Brazil who haven't had access to other things, but rather an effort to kind of bring those conversations together um, to center indigenous spaces and, and agents.
Definitely. And, and so, yeah, besides this methodology, um, as mentioned at the outset, you have a lot of experience with digital humanities and digital mapping. Um, and this book employs a lot of maps, both from the period, but, but especially of your own creation. And I, I will recommend to listeners out there to um, check out uh, Dr. Erbig's uh, online article on the subject entitled Borderline Offerings, Tolderias and Mapmakers in 18th Century Rio de la Plata, which has a lot of uh, great interactive maps um, that describe a lot of these processes that we've been talking about. But in terms of digital humanities, how do you think your work, um, how do you think this work with, with that digital humanities and mapping project has enhanced your and your readers' uh, understanding of this topic? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, as much as digital maps are so integral to this project, mm-hmm. I never imagined that that would really be a part of it at all. Uh, I mean, when I started the project, we didn't have kind of digital humanities centers or support. I had the good fortune of when I was in Chapel Hill of, ha- of having um, some librarians who were trained in geographic information systems who were endlessly patient with me as I kind of figured out how to, how to use this. Um, so first, how did this, you asked, like, how has it enhanced my understanding? Um, for me, I mean, I very honestly, I just started because I was trying to understand where things were happening and the sources I was reading. Right. So when you're doing particularly rural histories, right, you need to know the names of creeks and rivers and passes and uh, fords and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I was really just trying to map that out. So, for example, when I followed the mapping expeditions, I could know where they were. Right. Um, and in doing so, try to understand, oh, OK, here, like, are they over time, like beginning to understand, oh, OK, now they're entering into lands claimed and controlled and belonging to particular native polities. Um, it, all, it helped me in, in other ways as well. And I think this is where you might, what you see a little bit more reflected in the kind of the final product of the book itself. One, it helped me to see historiographical assumptions. So the very, one of the very, after what I just said, one of the other things that I mapped um, was kind of historical arguments regarding imagined migrations of ethnic communities. So there's a tendency in the region to narrate these over time, um, these like, it's purported like unidirectional migrations of charruas or minuanas or of other native communities, right? And ostensibly, they were migrations from the present day nation state or province or state of the author to a neighboring one, right? So it was a story of kind of territorial evacuation and disappearance, um, right? So like Uruguayan scholarship often talks about like charruas migrating north into Brazil, um, those, if not, you know, if not kind of just disappearing broadly or migrating into Argentina. And when I mapped that all together, I saw, oh, actually, these are all contradictory arguments, right? If you read all of these arguments together, not even like going to archives, they make no logical sense. Um, and then what that led me to do in my own work was to really, and this is where like a lot of what we talked about before, thinking about like Romerias and space and, and location is literally try to put those communities on the map, right? So then rather than simply have maps that like, mark European settlements and then put like broader ethnic names in the spaces we often see and is often kind of the archive forces us to do, um, to literally try to map where at least via the sources that we have, right? I mean, an incomplete um, and, you know, rendering that we need to be critical of and think about, but try to map where native peoples were and how they moved over time. Um, So one thing that I didn't expect, but I saw was after the drawing of the border, right? Increased references to native 
communities near the border. And in some cases, I was able to follow particular communities as they moved towards those spaces, right? Something that I would have never been able to find if I had simply adopted kind of that more ambiguous, like this is a zone of inner, um, you know, intercultural relations, right? But thinking about the precision of that. Um, and in the same way, you know, seeing the limits of imperial actions, like when I would map out, where are these imperial agents actually going when they're claiming control over the entirety of the region? And you would see it like generally wasn't very far from the settlement. Um, so how I, I hope that it helps readers kind of see the things that I'm saying in the text, right? I don't see maps as like objective truths, right? I always have a critical reading of maps and I would hope that readers apply the same reading to my maps, um, but rather I see them as arguments. Um, so what I'm trying to use the, the maps in, in the book are is to um, demonstrate a different sort of reading of an archive, a sort of a collective reading of the archive that we can read alongside other things as well. Um, and then the only piece of advice I would say to, to kind of cut off my answer here um, is that, you know, the advice that I always give people who are thinking about doing similar things is to not map just for the sake of mapping, but to really think about what is the thing you're trying to answer. Um, and whatever mapping you do, if you go that direction, right, seek to use that to help you understand that rather than create a project so that you can have a fancy clickable map. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think I, I think that showing, especially when you emphasize the tilderias in, in your maps, really sets it, it apart from the sort of typical maps that that you know students get, especially you know in, in a high school or college curriculum of sort of these shaded maps of you know British, Spanish, Portuguese sort of dominion that really is not the truth on the ground, and so those maps and those alternative maps are a good way of demonstrating that native presence, the native, uh, native ground. Um, exactly. So um, to, as, as a, fi a final question, we usually like to ask our guests um, if they have any upcoming projects or publications, um, any, yeah, any, any projects on the horizon for you? Um, yes. So uh, without going into too much detail, at, at present I'm working on um, two specific projects. Um, the first, um, which for folks who read Spanish, um, I'm co-authoring with some um, indigenous activists and intellectuals in, in, uh, in Uruguay a, um, to commemorate the 200th anniversary of the death of Felix de Asada, who was kind of one of these Spanish officials who came through the region and is often seen as kind of a figure similar to, to Humboldt, right? He's kind of this naturalist and so on. Um, kind of thinking about what his work has meant for imaginaries vis-a-vis um, -vis indigenous peoples in the region, right? So how is it that his work at, at kind of trying to taxonomize native peoples and trying to um, have a spatial project to dispossess them of their land, how is that kind of very much undergirded the logic of kind of national imaginaries or intellectual discourse in the region? So that's an article length thing that we're working on now. Um, as far as the second book project, uh, I'm working on uh, history, kind of colonial histories of uh, deportation or forced migration. Um, so basically kind of intersecting patterns of um, convict transportation and indigenous exile. Um, so I, in the briefest sense, I kind of came into this um, because at the very tail end of the project we just discussed, I saw the... I saw um, several cases of charruas being sent to the 
uh, Malvinas Islands, often referred to in English as the Falkland Islands. Um, and I thought, like, what are Charroas doing in the Falklands? And why are they uprising against, um, against the British there? Like, what is going on here? Uh, and, and in thinking about that, I started seeing all of these patterns of um, uh, folks from colonial settlements, whether they were, uh, who were kind of deemed criminals, whether that be for um, uh, illicit commerce, sexual nonconformity, um, any number of things being forced and sent to, to these borderland spaces to occupy them. Um, and conversely, Native peoples being taken from these spaces and sent to either other borders or prison colonies or otherwise. So part of what I'm trying to do is think about the connection between kind of the 18th century rise of this practice, um, which there's been a lot written about in the 19th and 20th century, um, and how that connects to border making um, and kind of the growth of settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. Well, we're looking forward to seeing both those projects in print in the future. Um, and many thanks again, uh, Dr. Eric, for your time and this really enlightening discussion. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. I appreciate it. Uh, our pleasure. Uh, where Caciques and Mapmakers Met, Border Making in 18th Century South America is out now via the University of North Carolina Press. For the New Books Network, this is R. Grant Kleiser saying thank you for listening and see you next time.